broadcasting from Chico, California. This is the Barbless Fly Fishing Podcast, where we discuss NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries science and management, conservation, and more. No better, fish better. Here's your host, Hogan Brown. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Hogan Brown, your host of the Barbless Podcast, and welcome back to the Barbless Podcast. It's been a bit. Today, we are going to do something a little different. Uh, we have a full calendar of guests coming up over the next couple of weeks as we record some new episodes. But a few weeks ago, maybe more than that, I uh, put up on the Barbless Podcast and my own Instagram and social medias as well, saying, hey, if uh, there's questions that listeners want answered or things they want to hear me talk about to submit them. The response was fairly overwhelming in the amount of things that people wanted to talk about or have me talk about or have me answer. And I saved all of them. And I sat down, gosh, a couple weeks ago and with this very serious intent to answer all of these questions. Next thing I knew, I'd been sitting speaking to this lovely microphone in front of me for the better part of a few hours. And what I realized was I can ramble on about a lot of stuff and that I may need to answer these questions with a little more thought in uh, keeping it short, keeping it sweet and keeping it concise. So we are going to try version two of listeners question podcast version one is may get released when we do like the, you know, 50th anniversary bonus material, uh, podcast dump, but, uh, it will not be released anytime soon. I imagine though I do imagine it will take a few episodes to get through all of our listeners questions. And so if you do not hear me answer your question on this episode, my goal is to, get through them all as we occasionally release these or record these listener question episodes. And by all means, if you have new ones, definitely message me at my Instagram or the Barbless Instagram, and we will put those questions into the, I guess, bucket, the metaphorical digital bucket of questions that uh, we need to get to. So I tried to keep them. I'm going to try to go through some timely ones and the first one I wanted to answer, because this one I I could talk probably for a whole episode on this, and I think a lot of people probably are interested in it. It's one of our most popular local fisheries, and Max Henderson 11 asked me, what tips do you have for someone fishing the Yuba? Well, if you don't know, He's referring to the lower Yuba. It's a tailwater fishery below Inglebright Reservoir. It's a tributary to the Feather, which is then a tributary to the lower Sacramento River. I grew up on the lower Yuba, as I like to say, but technically I grew up in the beautiful town of, well, it's actually, I don't know if it's a town. It's definitely an unincorporated area, I would imagine, of Penn Valley off of Houghton Ranch Road. My actual, the actual street I lived on, which I was always at, as a kid, kind of embarrassed to tell people I lived on it, but the name of the street was Pet Hill, Pet Hill Drive. 
And behind kind of down by my house was Deer Creek, which backed up to the lower Yuba. And I spent many, many years um, fishing, tromsing around, playing everything from army to army men to trying to catch fish on the creek and the river. So tips for the lower Yuba, I was thinking about this and, you know, I could obviously run through many, but the lower Yuba, the, the, the biggest advice I give people, I remember when I used to, people assume since I've spent so much time on it, and that's kind of where I, I guess, begin my guiding career, um, to some degree, um, actually probably not to some degree, probably I did begin my guiding career there. The biggest advice, and I think the only advantage that I have over anyone, it's not like I'm any of an amazing angler or guide is I think at this point of the guides and people, uh, definitely the guides, I've been out there the longest And the Yuba is one of those rivers. I think that experience on the water is the best thing that you can do to be successful on the lower Yuba. The lower Yuba changes so much throughout the year and spending time on it in all its different iterations and all the different seasons is really probably the number one or the first thing that any angler that's looking to be successful on the lower Yuba should look at. You know, most weekend anglers or I would say recreational anglers get to go to the Yuba maybe once a month, once twice a month. Well, on a normal water year, the lower Yuba river could be a completely different fishery between one month to the next. And the Yuba is one of those rivers that is somewhat in a, a constant state of change. If you fish the Yuba a ton in the winter, say now it's incredibly low on a good winter, which Let's cross our fingers. I hope we have. It could triple, quadruple in size in another month with a good couple rainstorms. That river could go from 700 CFS, 800 CFS to a stable 2000. So obviously the same techniques in the same water that you or I catch fish in at 600 is not the same water that you or I would catch fish in 2000. And likewise, the same flies, techniques, weight, length of drop, all these type of things um, are not the same. So I guess the first tip I would give anyone that's looking to fish the Yuba is be, be a student of the conditions with which you are fishing it. Look at the flows before you go, you know, know the flows that you're fishing the river at and I always tell people that catching fish, hooking fish on the Yuba and, and realistically anywhere is, is not a mistake. A lot of people will say, oh, I stumbled into one. I hooked one. I lost, you know, whatever the, however you define it. But the, the reality is, is you, you fooled the fish into eating your fly. So that is usually an experience as anglers that we want to reproduce. So take note of that. If it's June and you're out there and the flows are 2,500 and you found fish in two to three feet of water on a inside seam and the fish ate this, 
make note of that. That is something that you're going to want to reproduce. And then take that and try to find areas where that can be reproduced. I talk about this a lot with striper fishing and my buddies is once we find fish, we try to find other areas that look like that one area we found fish. So by being a student of the river and keeping note and paying attention of where you're catching fish, how you're catching fish, what the river conditions are that you're catching those fish in, you just give yourself more information and more ability to reproduce that success at a other places within the river or B at another time on the river that presents you with similar conditions, situations. I always tell people that really to get that information, um, there's no experience or there's no, I guess not experience. There's no substitute for a full year on the Yuba in the sense of if you really want to learn how to be successful on the Yuba, you have to fish the Yuba 12 months out of the year and see it in all its iterations and build that encyclopedia and that knowledge of conditions, flies and fish behavior. So that when you go back the next year, you have something to reference from anytime people talk or ask questions about fishing. And I, I get, I get a lot of questions hence we're doing this podcast, but I get a lot of emails. I get a lot of questions on Instagram and, and realistically there, there is absolutely no substitute for time on the water and experience and on especially on the Yuba. So two biggest tips so far for the Yuba really go go at various times and take note of the conditions that you are fishing the river in as an angler. The fish on the Yuba I have found in my 20 plus years of guiding out there and then add on some more of fishing, their behavior is very predictable. They just have a lot of different behaviors. And that's another thing that's important to kind of, I guess, share is there's plenty of days where any of the great guides out there, in my experience, struggle. The Yuba is a classic river for me of, I'll be on it for a couple days in a row. I'll find the pattern. I'll be on it. I know what they want. I know where they are. I know what they're eating. I'm on it. We're catching fish. Confidence is high. And then maybe something slight changes. The flows drop 100 CFS. The clarity gets a little clearer. The water temps come up. The weather gets a little warmer. Something changes. Lord knows what it is. And I'm struggling again. I'm, you know, you feel like you are on a river with no fish or all the fish just left. They packed up. There's nothing more like anxiety provoking in a guide or at least maybe not, but definitely in me, then on the Yuba, you're, you've been on the Yuba for a few days and this happens striper fishing too. You roll into a few of your favorite spots and you just get blanked in the fly box comes out. You start throwing different flies on. You just 
throwing darts at the board. And I always have to slow myself down in kind of, even after all the time I've spent on the water guiding, I still can panic at times. And there's a lot of mental battles that go on inside your head to, to keep your cool and kind of figure it out and work through the process. And the, the kind of thing that I'm trying to say is that the Yuba is a tough river for anyone. And there are days where, man, you just struggle to find fish. But one thing about the Yuba that I've, the older I've gotten is, and the more I've spent on that is I used to be, when I was younger, I would, I would go through the fly box. I would, you know, change out 10 different versions of a blue wing olive. I would do this. I would do that. And what I kind of have come to on the Yuba is it's not necessarily the fly. While there are definitely flies that work and flies that don't. My fly selection on the Yuba as I've gotten older and I've fished out there more has actually gotten smaller. I probably only fish, gosh, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight patterns, definitely no more than 10 or 12 out on the Yuba 365 days a year. Now I'll throw some new ones in there as I definitely test and come up with new ones. But usually if I'm grinding to find a new fly pattern, that means one of those is getting chucked, meaning the fish have kind of gotten hip to it. But I find that finding the water that the fish are in and feeding in like those happy fish are in seems to be over the years as I've spend time out there much more critical. And that's another kind of tip for the Yuba is don't get, don't grow, you know, I, I don't know who it was, but somebody told me a long time ago, well, that's a long time ago, said, you know, don't grow roots. You know, don't be the person that stands in the, the corner of the riffle and just switches out flies. And that's not necessarily a strategy. I think that pays off on the Yuba. Because I've found there's definitely, maybe there's fish on the, in that spot you're at, but if they ain't eating, they ain't eating. And if you are, you know, a confident angler enough to turn over a few rocks or look out or kind of know the, the flies that should work and you can get a, a decent drift and you're not getting bit, then those fish aren't happy. They're not eating. So move, find a new spot. And one thing I will say about the Yuba, and this is true no matter what the flow is, is the fish can be anywhere. There is no death valleys in the Yuba. I have caught fish throughout my life on that river in every little nook and cranny and long, slow, flat, and every spot. I, I can't think of a run or a riffle or a bucket or a back slough or whatever that has not produced fish at some point in my life. Now there's definitely spots that I roll into and I'm like, I haven't caught a fish in there in five years, but there was a time I caught fish there and maybe it's a condition, a flow, the depth change, whatever. Cause the, the river does change every time the water comes up high, but don't grow roots, move around, cover water try new spots. And you know, a lot of the spots with the, definitely with the pressure on that river over the last say year and a half, 
a lot of the spots I catch fish, I'm just looking for spots people aren't fishing or the spots that are by the spots that everyone's fishing that they're going to push the fish to. So if every drift boat's running down the inside seam on this run, probably not going to be any fish on that inside seam. The boats are banging, they're pushing fish, guys are walking in. It's not like the fish, you know, packed up their suitcases and swam out to the feather and left. They just got pushed somewhere in that run. So where are they going to get pushed? You got to think outside a little bit of the box. And that's kind of a, a kind of another tip as I talk about this and kind of, you know, someone asked, what are some tips for fishing you, but let, think outside the box, you know, get up on that rock and hang some flies into that little, you know, back eddy. Look at the riffle and the inside seam and think about fishing the other deep slot on the other side of the river. Maybe those fish got pushed. So other tips as I sit here and think about the Yuba is I would say know the bugs, the, the Yuba in the sense of understand the entomology. And that that's really true on any river. But as I say, I only fish 10 or 12 flies anymore on the Yuba. The, the, the reality is that I've fine tuned those 10 or 12 over 20 plus years of fishing out there. And a lot of that comes from spending time looking at bugs. And I probably have done that more on the Yuba than any other river. But I'm always amazed when a fly fisherman, you ask a fly fisherman, have you ever turned over a rock or have you ever looked at bugs? And many, many have not. And I mean, if they have, they could probably count on one hand how many times they've done that. And I've always thought that is just such a, an odd thing. It'd be like asking someone, you know, someone that plays the guitar, plays an instrument that has never listened to music. Well, you do this thing, but you've never listened to anyone else do it or anything else out there. Well, flies, fly fishermen, we're trying to imitate insects with thread, hook, and dubbing. And especially if you don't tie flies and you have never turned over rocks and looked at the bugs. How do you know that fly in the fly box is actually the fly that imitates the bugs that are in the water? It's a lot of faith to put in somebody sitting behind the counter in a fly shop that hands you the, like, here, you need these. These work. Well, ask them, have you ever turned over rocks on the river I'm going to? Have you ever seen what those mean? Guarantee the answer is probably no. So another thing for the Yuba is look at the bugs. If you're going to go spend $50 or $100 on flies and then you're going to take your Saturday or your Sunday or your whatever, your recreation time, do a little bit of work because you want to be successful. Turn over those rocks. Look at what it is you are imitating with what you are buying out of that fly box. I guarantee you, you'll be incredibly surprised. They don't look a lot like a lot of the bugs in the box that you get sold. And that's not a a knock on a fly shop or not a knock on the fly tying industry. It's just the reality of 
if you walk into a shop, someone's going to hand you most likely a couple different types of patterns. Then you, once you get there, have to decide which one to tie on. And maybe they handed you the right pattern. But if you don't turn over the rock and know what the bugs in there that are going to be in the drift in that riffle are, you don't know as an angler what fly to tie on. You, you may have the right one. They may have sold you the ticket. But if you pick the wrong one out of a little cup, then, you know, that's on you. So the other kind of tip I would say on the Yuba is spend, spend time. One of my mentors told me, he, you know, he said, you know, the first thing you should do when you get to a river is not pick up your rod, but start looking, watch, watch the river, turn over the rocks, look what's going on, look in the bushes, take the 10 or 15 minutes that that actually probably takes to do a little work, to kind of spend a little time, look and see what's going on, and then take that information and use that to go to the next step, to rig up the rod. Is it a nymph? You know, are we going to nymph here? Is there dry flies out? What's under the rocks? What's here? You know, and it just helps. And the Yuba is a place, I think, where that, for anglers, gives just a little bit more of that experience into the bank. If you go out and you're a student of the river, you're a student of the conditions you're fishing in, then it just adds more information and more points of reference for maybe that next time you go out and fishing's a little tough or the next couple years down the road. We got, oh yeah, I remember I was here that one day and then this and this and this. And you can kind of go through the boxes. So, the Yuba, I would never pretend to be an expert on the Yuba. I just spent a lot of time out there. So I got a lot of points of reference. That's what I tend to tell people. And the river does not fish like it did five years ago. It doesn't fish like it did 10 years ago. It doesn't fish like it did one year ago. Some days it doesn't fish like it did the day before. And that's the beauty of the Yuba. That's what keeps people coming back. And that's what keeps it interesting. Hopefully that gives you some tips, Max, and anyone else that's listening that's interested in uh, the home water of the Lower Yuba River. All right. So the next question comes from Derby SC, or excuse me, Derby SHC. Of all the knowledge you've gained on the water fishing for striped bass, what was the hardest to learn or figure out? Ooh, that's a good one. First of all, when I started going out to the lower sack outside of my house here in Chico, fishing for stripers, I went out with a bass fishing mentality that had been added to a lot of trout fishing mentality or a lot of trout fishing knowledge. I was not a striper fisherman. I had done a lot of largemouth fishing and I had done a lot more trout fishing. So the hardest thing to begin with was learning that what I knew didn't have a whole lot of crossover that I needed to, as much as, I guess, as much as I was good 
quote, good at those other things. And that I had experience guiding for trout and experience guiding for largemouth and those things that with stripers, I was starting over and I had to see the river. I had to see water. I had to understand fish and weather and structure in a completely new way. Reality was I didn't have much of a reference point to build off of. I was in the dark trying to build a house and I was fortunate to have some great friends and mentors, Mike Costello, John Sherman, Leo Serin at Fish First, Will Turek, Jason Lozano, a lot of guys that at least at the time had spent a lot more time striper fishing than I had. Definitely Mike Costello, definitely John Sherman, and definitely Leo. So I could ask them questions, bounce ideas off them, but my water, the river, you know, where I was fishing, they didn't fish. So I had to take information from guys that were fishing mainly the Delta and see or kind of figure out how or if it crossed over to the river. As time went on and I, I adjusted and built this understanding of stripers in the water and the river and learned to see the river in a very different way. That was probably to start with one of the hardest things to, I guess, rework in my brain is the river and water moved the same way that it did on every river that I'd ever been on. The problem was that every river I'd ever been on, I was targeting trout in. And trout don't need, don't behave, don't do the same things that stripers do. So I understood hydrology and flows and seams and depths and all those things, but I didn't understand the fish that I was targeting and how that fish related to those things. That took a long time and I think is something that I still, 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 still to this day learn every time I'm out there. Seeing water and understanding how fish react to it and behave to it is, I think, a, a, a book that we never, never finish writing. We're always learning on that. Because a lot of the places that we fish, the sack especially, where, we, where I spend most of my time striper fishing, is always changing. Always changing. And I'm always learning, you know. So I would have to say that was probably one of the hardest things to start with. The, the second thing came... A few years, I, I think it's a few years, but I, I would have to say the second thing that was really probably one of the hardest things to learn as I go through it was stripers and bass in general. And this was a thing that while I say I had guided for largemouth bass, I'd guided for largemouth bass when largemouth bass fishing was good. If the fishing was tough for largemouth bass, we went trout fishing. So 
it I guided for them, but I did not guide for them every day, have to put fish in the boat, even when conditions were tough. So with stripers, the hardest thing that that I think I did to start out with is I, I didn't guide for stripers. I guided for stripers really like the end of June through like the first part of August when I understood what they were doing, when you had stable weather, stable water, like the conditions were like robotically stable every day. So as I realized being a striper guide was really what I wanted to do, I really enjoyed it. I had to figure out a way to extend the season. So I had to learn how those fish behave in different flows, different water temperatures, how weather, how all those things that begin to change, say, after August and before June, affect those fish. When the barometer starts to shift coming into September and October, what do those fish do? What happens when the, when the wet water temperatures start to drop? What do they do? How do they behave? When the flows get dropped in October, what happens when the water starts to get really cold in November and December? If the river blows out in January, December, where do those fish go? Understanding the fish and how they react to changes in their environment is still for me one of the hardest things about striper fishing or one of the hardest things to learn because they are so sensitive to the weather and the patterns of the weather and the light conditions and water temperatures. And realistically, all the stuff that trout kind of shrug off, to be honest with you. I've never, you know, trout fishing, you know, if the weather's hot, then it's hot. The river's the same temperature. It's a tailwater for most of us, you know. And June, they're going to kind of eat the same bugs most of the month and they're going to eat kind of at the same time. And in September and October, they're going to eat the same thing and they're going to kind of eat at the same time. If it gets overcast, it's going to be better. If the barometer changes, I don't really find that trout notice that much or really care. So understanding all these things was probably and well is one of the hardest things and is still one of the hardest things for me to figure out and learn. Stripers are one species, and I think bass are this way in general, is they're one of the few, I, I don't have this experience with trout. Bass like will just stop eating. And you can run a fly, you can run cut bait, you can run a bleeding crippled pike minnow in front of them, and they will not eat it. Trout, I have found that especially as we talked earlier, like the lower Yuba, I can find happy fish. I can find fish that are going to eat. We're going to find some fish. Like we can get a fish eventually or two or three to eat. There's days on the, on the lower sack for stripers in these kind of off months, or if the barometer just goes crazy, there's moments the bite will just shut off. They will not eat nothing. No bueno. I don't care if you're throwing a 15 inch swim bait, a fly or dragon live pike minnows. They will just not eat. I've never experienced a fish in my life like bass this way that just shut off. Granted, most of my experiences with bass or trout. So take what that is, what it, what it is. 
The other thing I would think that is or was incredibly hard was understanding and controlling a boat. And I know that sounds fairly generic. So running a trolling motor is not easy. I don't, if you've ever tried to fish two people out of a boat with a trolling motor, it's not easy. Just like rowing a drift boat, the best make it look effortless. And then you sit in the chair and you're doing donuts down all over the place. Running a trolling motor while a lot easier on your body than rowing a drift boat is not an easy thing to do. And understanding how to position a boat so two people can fish and how the stripers in the various water want the fly presented to them or moving through the water has been kind of my new, I'd say over the last couple of years, hard thing to learn is I've really refined and paid attention to how do they want the fly swimming? Meaning, do they want it coming down the current, across the current, up the current? How are they hunting? Where are those bait fish? And then how do I position the boat so my guy that striper fishes twice a year, once a year can make that presentation with maybe not the longest or most accurate cast. So refining the process through those kind of three things, as we look kind of like through the years, what have been the hard things, the hardest things to learn out there would definitely be adjusting my understanding of the environment from that trout guide, largemouth bass guide perspective. Second, understanding how weather patterns, flows, and water temperature really are game changers when you're talking about bass fishing and understanding how and what to do in those situations when you can't just be like, hey, we're going home, fishing sucks. That's not an option. I have guys that you know, book flights and stay in hotels and travel from all over the country to come striper fish. So if I'm going to sell this, I got to figure out how to put fish on the deck or at least give it the old country try to make their day the best. And that, that was a hard, hard thing to learn and something I still struggle with. There's plenty of days this fall and winter I've gotten blanked out there. We've gotten a couple grabs and we haven't put a fish in the boat. What's really weird is the day before we may have smashed them. The day after it, we may have smashed them. But the barometer does one weird thing and man, lights out. And lastly, the thing I've been working on a lot lately when you talk about presenting of the fly. Most guys that fish the river and most guys that striper fish is bomb it out as far as they can. Well, the, and that works a lot of times on the Delta because you're not, you know, you're fishing current on the Delta, but it's very, you know, and again, I have very limited experience fishing the Delta, but when I've been fishing the Delta, I cast it out, count it down and strip. The river is an, a, I think personally, a much more dynamic environment. So there's not a cast it out and sh- let it sink Well, there is. That's one way to do it. And in certain spots, that's how you got to present the fly. There's other spots where that's not how you do it. The current's going one way, the boat's going the other. You got to do this, that, and this. You got to stack mend here to get the fly under that current. You know, 
understanding presentation and how that relates to boat positioning and running the boat, that's my, uh, that's my new piece. All right. Hopefully, hopefully that answers, um, that kind of question for Derby SHC. I think that's the handle of the, the hardest things I've had to figure out in that vein vintage ham bone, a, a river warrior, as I would say, a, a good, good dude I see on the river quite a bit, asked, personal best of all species you regularly target, favorite species to target, and why? So, personal best, I could honestly tell you that I don't remember many of my personal best. I, I can tell you, and, and here's the deal. My let's start, let's let's back this up. So my favorite species to target, if you if anyone is in doubt, is striped bass. I I fished for everything as like Picasso had his different phases and you know the stones had theirs and the Beatles had theirs and all people and artists have theirs. I've had my my steelhead phase. I had my tailwater trout phase. I, I had all these phases and I'm, I may have more. I hopefully have more in me. I hopefully have a, I get addicted and have the financial wherewithal to do it to something else. I would say over the last 10 to 15 years, I've had, I've built my life around striper fishing for many reasons. One, it's best suited to the things that are important to me. And that is my family being home and available for my kids and my family. It's a close fishery. I, I live minutes from, from it. I don't spend two or three hours in the car driving back and forth to the, the lower sack or the lower Yuba. It does not beat my body up like running in a drift boat and the fish are the, the thing I always tell people about striper fishing is I've never been to any other, I've never, well, I've never guided or really had the opportunity to fish. I'm sure there's other fisheries that exist where the gap between what is possible is so big. As I talked earlier in the episode about the lower Yuba, I, I spent much of my life on the lower Yuba. And a 14-inch fish is a great fish. Good job. Net it, unhook it, let it go. A 22-inch fish, like we're pulling over and taking pictures. That's a that's a trophy. That may be the biggest fish if it's a fat 22 that most anglers ever catch on that river. Well, that's like eight inches in difference. That's, I mean, that's not even a Subway sandwich. That's not a, that's not a big gap between what is possible. So, whereas striper fishing, you could catch a two pound fish or you could catch a 50 pound fish on any day. And on a lot of days, you're going to catch a two pound fish and probably see something in the 20, 30, 40 pound range, at least see it, maybe even hook it. But that 
possibility and that gap between what is out there is I've never experienced it anywhere else. And it, it is also hideously addicting when that is a possibility. So without a doubt, river striper fishing, favorite thing. I'm completely addicted to it. I, uh, I would like to say, well, it's recreationally and guiding wise, pretty much what I do most of the time now. So personal bests. I, I think most anglers don't, I don't remember a lot of my personal bests. I remember a lot of my personal best defeats, I think like the largest fish I've lost. I remember a lot of big fish that clients, I mean, let's be real. I I spend way more time guiding than I do fishing on my own. So I could tell you a lot about memorable fish that clients have hooked and landed. I could tell you about memorable fish clients have lost. I would say two of my most memorable stripers that I've one I lost and one I landed uh, one was probably probably my personal best that I landed. The personal best that I landed was it uh, it bogeyed at 42, 42, 41, somewhere around there. To be honest, I forget. I just, it was over 40 pounds. I was fishing on my own. I remember very well. I uh, I think the kids and my wife were out of town. They were young. The boys were young. They weren't fishing yet. They were out of town. I had gotten taco truck, gotten a burrito at the taco truck. Was out fishing in the afternoon. I think it was like August, August, September. And I hadn't been out for a while. I'd been guiding really hard, guiding a ton. And this was kind of, I knew where the fish were. We'd been banging them. This was, this was, this was guide's day off. I'm going to go beat up on these things I've watched other people catch for the last months, you know. So go out, first run, right above what we call Camp Island throw out, cast out, running line just mangles, just turns into a knot. And I know whoever put it away last, let's be real, is probably the client in the boat from the day before. You know, messed it up, knotted it up, and just reeled it up in there, and I'm cursing it, and I'm untangling it, trying not to get, you know, by the, I don't know, may have been 30 seconds, felt like five minutes. I'm like, okay, hit the anchor on the trolling motor, sit on the deck and I'm just, I'm untying knots. Flies sitting out there. Who knows? Probably snagged on a log, going to lose it. So I untangle the line. When I look back on it, it may have taken two minutes, but for a guy that had been waiting and just in his mind psyched to go fish, it felt like an hour. Finally get it untangled. Start to kind of strip it in. And of course, as soon as I come tight to what I think is the fly, it's stuck and I'm pissed. Now I'm going to lose my fly that I just tied. I'm going to break it off. Now we got to re-rig, do the whole thing over again. Just, you know, delayed fishing once again. And I get so pissed. I just start to double fist yank on it. And then all of a sudden, and I mean, I was yanking on it for again, probably like 10 seconds, but it felt like a minute. You just feel those two 
if you've ever hooked a big one, you know what those first two head shakes are like, that big back and forth, and there's nothing like it. And I, oh, I said, oh, that's not a snag. And I know, I try to set the hook on the fish, you know, who knows how long it had been down there chewing on it. This, you know, the, it may have swallowed the fly and put it in its lower intestine at that point. It'd been sitting down there so long. So I try to get a good hook set on it and I'm fighting it. I fight it out to the middle of the river and I'm just thinking, I'm like, I have no business landing this fish. Like this is a total just unearned fish. Like this is, I felt dirty as all my clients that fish with me multiple times a year, spend thousands of dollars chasing fish. And here I, you know, walk out here, throw one cast, let it sit on the bottom of the river for like 10 minutes. Oh, there's one, you know? So I fight it. It's a great fight. I'm not going to lie. It was awesome. And I get this thing up to the boat and I'm just blown away. Pull it into my pike cradle, weigh the thing. It's biggest, biggest striper I've ever hooked. No camera. Like I don't have a camera left my purposely, right? Like purposely left my phone in the truck. Didn't want to be bothered. Just needed a day. And so all, all I have is the story in my memory, which is kind of cool. But at the same time, it's, there's people with way better personal best stories than that. The other one I have, which I would like to think was bigger than that, was this was even before this. So this was many years ago, many years ago, 10 years ago, let's say. I was fishing with a good friend of mine, Casey Johnson at the time. And we were coaching baseball at the time together. And we were both big baseball fans, obviously still am. And we were arguing, and this will tell you, this will date it. We were arguing about the Yankees and we were arguing if Joe Torrey was one of the greatest managers in baseball. Now, I still to this day argue that Joe Torrey was a good manager. He had one of the greatest teams ever assembled, which covers up a lot of managerial errors. Like that, you know, who knows how good he was. He basically just had to fill out a lineup card. So Casey, on the other hand, believed he was one of the best managers in the history of baseball, da-da-da. So we're arguing. It's getting heated. We're casting. We're fishing these snags and I cast out and I'm, I'm focused. We're in his boat. He's running the boat and he says something. I can't remember what he said, but I, obviously he was wrong because I hideously disagreed and kind of just stopped stripping for a minute to make my point or correct Casey. And then I pull the fly line again to strip again. And as I come, it goes tight and I get a kind of half hook set fumble jockey mess up hook set on it. Feel the two big head shakes that felt enormous. And the thing just started moving out to the middle of the river. That's like dead giveaway, big fish load up the rod on it, get a good couple more head shakes. And it, it corked. I think I was fishing at the time, a 10 weight immediately corked this thing felt I was being towed around while I was fishing a two weight or something. And I fought it for what seemed like a fair amount and and fighting. It's a very loose term. I basically held on to this thing as it ran out into the middle of the river from this big snag wall that we were fishing. 
And then it just went slack through the hook. And so still to this day, whenever I see Joe Torre on TV or he's at a baseball game or I see him interviewed, I kind of like scowl and blame him for being the reason I lost probably one of my biggest stripers ever. Not Casey Johnson. I don't blame Casey Johnson. I blame Joe Torre. So Joe Torre, if you're listening, you suck for helping me lose that striper. But you know, you weren't a bad baseball manager. So, all right. So that concludes, I think we're sniffing up on an hour here. That's going to conclude our, our listeners question episode one. Cause I'm going to be real. I didn't get to many of them. Three is not, I'm not scratching the surface. So, uh, if you do have questions, please wait, <laughs> hold your questions until I get through everybody's, but I'm just joking. You can send in as many as you want. I, I'd be happy. I, I love the questions people send in. And if they're answerable with my thumbs and a, a phone, I will definitely answer them in uh, Instagram, email, any of them. So thank you to our sponsors, Loon Outdoors in Sierra Nevada. Check us out on Instagram, barbless.co. Check me out on Instagram, HDB Fly Fishing. Check out any of our websites and other stuff. And uh, we'll talk to you next time. No better, fish better. Part of the Barbless Podcast Network. Special thanks to our sponsors. Without them, this show would not be possible. Like this episode? Leave a review. 